Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the lockdown with theater's biggest movers and shakers, on Broadway, off-Broadway, and streaming to a device near you. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Sarah Rule. She's the award-winning playwright of Eurydice, The Clean House, and In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play, among many others. She's also a poet and essayist, and her work has won her a MacArthur Genius Grant, the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, and the Steinberg Distinguished Playwright Award. She is also the co-founder of Three Views, a new theater website that originated in the minds of its creators as one thing and then pivoted to something else as it became clear that Three Views was going to launch during this extended period when theaters have been closed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Rule is in the virtual studio with me to talk poetry and presence in the theater and what she hopes Three Views can offer as we all wait for theaters to reopen. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Happy to speak to you. Yes. So tell us about Three Views. What was the original idea behind it? And when did you first have it? So the original idea was sort of spawned by a large cohort of theater makers around three years ago. And the initial idea was to start some kind of online journal or publication that would have multiple perspectives on one piece of theater. And part of the impulse was to make the gatekeepers as diverse as the as the people making the art. Um, I think there was a growing feeling in the field, uh, you know, that that we needed more women critics and we needed more people of color as, as theater critics. Um, so that was the impulse. Uh, and also, I mean, diversity in that sense, but also diversity of opinion, aesthetic, genre. We were, we were interested in all kinds of multiplicity. Mm-hmm. And I think we realized creating this thing together just how hard it is to do something like that. I mean, it's incredibly hard. It's a huge labor. Uh, and we were sort of slowly trying to put together a model that made sense. And then the pandemic happened and we decided to pivot or I I love in Michelle Obama's autobiography, she talks about swerving, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have an idea or, or you're on a path and you have to swerve. Uh, 
And so the new notion during the pandemic was, what if we use the website that we were building instead to really create community in the theater by mourning productions that were canceled, archiving those productions somehow, offering prayers and reflections and elegies and sort of meditations by people in the theater community. So I think of it almost like a a Zen garden where you kind of keep putting a stone in front of a stone, thinking that we'll we'll keep posting these reflections until the theater reopens. Um, and right now it's it's kind of a way to hold space in the community. Yeah. Where does the name of the site come from? Gosh, I I can't even necessarily remember how we came up with it. It was a group effort. Um, I mean, I guess it was from the notion that we might have three views of one piece of art. Um, at some point, we were also thinking of sort of three sections, one that was reviews, one that was um, previews, and one was something that we were calling purviews. So we, we were just kind of playing around with the idea of multiple perspectives. And uh, we ended up, as it turns out, posting 13 reflections to start with, because I was thinking of the Wallace Stevens poem, 13 Ways of Seeing a Blackbird. And I guess mm. we thought if if there are 13 ways to see a blackbird, there must be at least 13 ways of seeing <laughs> one piece of theater. Right. And when was this? When did the first batch of posts go up? Uh, I think it was a week ago. Yeah. And so when, how often will that continue to be updated with new um, content? I think we will have a new reflection every week. So this week, Octavio Solis has a beautiful poem that's been posted. And then we have three um, canceled or closed early productions probably every two weeks. Uh, and right now the editor, Melissa Crespo, is is focusing on a different city every two weeks. Uh, oh. So she started with New York. Uh, and then I think in two weeks, Chicago will be featured. And these are little excerpts, for, at least from what I've seen. These are little excerpts with there's sometimes a little video or an excerpt from the play on the page and, you know, maybe some other information about it. Is that right? Is that basically what those what those remember uh, what those, I don't know, kind of um, memorials of those productions will be? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think we're hoping to get some kind of talisman for each production, you know, whether it's, um, there was an interview with a singer in intimate apparel and she sung a, a song in the interview. Yeah. This is or, the Lynn Nottage opera, um, yes, would have happened and will eventually, but not yeah. for a while. Exactly. Um, I mean, we're hoping to get, you know, just a little bit of texture or flavor, but it was also really important to me that there be an excerpt on the page. So there should be 10 page excerpts for each production. And, I guess the reason that was important to me was that I think in the time of pandemic, you know, there's one impulse to go digital, which I totally understand, but I think there will also be an analog need to go back to the page, you know, to see, see how these things live on the page before we can make them in three dimensions again. Yeah. And how is three views funded? Where does the infrastructure come from? Just financially speaking. So we are, a project from the Lilies, which um, Julia Jordan uh, is the fearless leader of the Champions Women in the Theater. Yeah. Uh, but the money really comes from a Kickstarter we did 
God, I mean, has is, is it been two years now? It's really taken mm. us a long time to put this together. So mm. it's really grassroots donations that fund the, the site. Yeah. And what, what were the main obstacles as you were putting this together? What was the thing that, that kept you, that slowed you down so much? I think it's that it's very hard to create a new credible model for criticism. There are pitfalls actually everywhere you look. And um, is this a is this an aesthetic model or a financial model or what 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 in particular every, were you? Everything. I mean, <laughs> I think you know, funding is a big deal. I I think mm. what we were trying to do was really ambitious, and to be completely candid, I don't think we could have done it without a huge um, fund from the Ford or the Mellon or something like that, and four full time employees to really make it a going concern. I mean, I think. We, we were a scrappy little group, but with, with a kind of big idea. Mm. Um, and I think no one realized just how much time and effort uh, you would need to create three views of one production and actually um, in, in a timely fashion so that mm. those could have an effect on the life of the production. Right. So, you know, I, I think it was an education for all of us. Um, coming from the theater and, and thinking, I think, um, rightfully, that it's wonderful to expand the idea of who can write about the theater. And, and I think that continues to be wonderful. But of course, when you don't have a background in journalism or um, uh, publication or startups, there, there are going to be a lot of learning curves that hit you with speed and velocity and mm-hmm you know, you feel like you're holding a firecracker that blows up in your face. Yeah. Do <laughs> contributors get paid? Yes, they do. They're, they're also free to donate back um, to, to the site. So a lot of folks have donated uh, and then we can pay a hundred dollars otherwise for a contribution. Right. Right. And what's surprised you about some of the work that's come in, in these initial weeks and that um, Freeviews has been posting these days? Well, I think one thing that's really heartened me is feeling like there is a need for secular prayer and and mourning and elegy. I mean, we've lost a, a lot of, all of us have lost our livelihood. So there's that. Um, many of us have lost a, a, a project that we're passionate about in a, in a profound spiritual way. Then we've lost people who we love. Um, so Mark Blum, Jessica Hecht wrote an elegy for Mark Blum that's really right. beautiful. And we hope to have more elegies. I think Julia will write one about Terrence. Um, mm. And I think I think a lot of publications have been doing a beautiful job covering these losses. Um, I think we're making the distinction between obituary and elegy, thinking elegies you know, slightly more personal. And I think the reason we felt there was a deep need for this is that normally we'd be gathering for funerals uh, and, and we're not. Right. I mean, it was such a strange time. I I saw my own father-in-law's funeral on a Zoom, you know, right. his memorial was in Los Angeles. So all of us in our own ways are grappling with how to mourn privately. And I guess our thinking was that the written word um, could be a, a place of intimacy um, between reader and writer and the community right now. Is it your intention that when things 
return to whatever normal will look like uh, in the future, that three views will swerve back to what its initial sort of plan was? I don't think we know yet. I mean, mm. I think one thing that's so hard is none of us can really imagine the future. Yeah. Uh, right now, I think as far as we're getting is thinking, let's let's make this little zen garden this plot you know stone in front of stone until we get to the theaters reopening and let's do it as a practice until then and see what we have um i do think there will still be a pressing need for more diversity and criticism once the theaters open up but i mm. i also think there will be such other pressing needs you know like <laughs> the health of the audience the health of the actors um all the people who've been on unemployment all the people who haven't been eating all the children who are starving, you know, so, um, so getting funding for that becomes, I think, really far down on the list of um, priorities to keep our community safe and, and, and functioning. So I think we'll, we'll see where we are at that point. Let's talk a little bit about what else has been keeping you busy these days. You recently released a book of poetry. Have you always written poems? I have. I've always secretly written poems um, <laughs> from the time I was pretty little. And it was Paula Vogel, my teacher, who who encouraged me to, uh, the, the, the swerve word again, to swerve from, mm. from poetry to playwriting. But I've always written them parallel to the plays, sometimes slipping a poem or two into a play. Mm. Um, and at some point, I felt like I had enough poems for a book. And I had this student, Max Ritvo, who was a poet at Yale, and, and he really encouraged me to publish my poetry uh, in a reversal of the usual. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not the way it usually happens. Yeah. Um, and that was the beginning, I think, of me me publishing. And I lost Max to, not just me, I mean, the world lost Max to cancer uh, about four years ago. Um, so... Uh, Anyway, I had, I had published a correspondence with Max called um, Letters from Max that some of the poems are in. And then um, I had this new book called 44 Poems for You that came out in March. Yeah. And pretty soon after New York City and the theater world went on lockdown, uh, you wrote in the Times that in lieu of theater, people could be writing and reading poetry to each other. Why is that? And what is the connection for you between verse and theater? I think they're deeply connected. And and I think it's something to do with voice and, and voicings. You know, the idea that poems really come al alive when you read them out loud, that they're meant for the human voice in the way that plays are. And that there's all this white space on the page of a poem where the imagination kind of takes flight where metaphors have, um, you know, a, a shimmering extra life in the silence in the same way that in a play, all that white, all that white space near the dialogue is meant for, um, for another visual life that you can't read on the page or for the body of the actor. Mm. So um, I think they're both forms of, of distillation and, and voice. And I do think, I find poetry really comforting right now because it slows us down um, and we're in a time of slowness and, and retreat. 
and you you can't get sick by reading a poem. <laughs> you can't they're not contagious. Um, and we have the attention span for a poem. Uh, and so it's also been lovely, I think, on Three Views, seeing some playwrights who are also poets, like Octavio, you know, to, sh- to share a poem. And his is about the natural world. It's, it's kind of it has an amazing last couplet about, and it kind of goes into the animal world taking over um, the natural world right now. And then talking about how in the mind of the animal world, um, we are the virus, actually. <laughs> this reversal of, of danger. I'll have more with Sarah right after the break. And now here's more with Sarah Rule. And th- I imagine there's also in your head some connection between theater, verse, and opera. I ask because you worked mm. on the libretto of a an adaptation of your play Eurydice mm-hmm. as an opera that we will see eventually. Um, another, mm. I, I imagine, another production that has been uh, postponed um, here in New York. Yeah. But um, what, how, how do those three things? Or have you enjoyed working on? the libretto and what was it like returning to that play again? I loved working on the libretto and part of it is my great love for this composer, Matthew O'Coin. So we had a really seamless collaboration and again, it was mostly distillation. I think it takes about, you know, three times as long to sing something as to say something. So Hmm. there was a lot of cutting and a little restructuring, but a lot of our collaboration was just Matt calling me from a field somewhere and saying, talk to me about this moment. And I would, and then he would score it. So um, I think, you know, again, thinking about that extra space around text, whether it's the body of an actor or the the space metaphor occupies in a reader's brain or a space for an um, amazing soprano to sing. um, I think it's, it's very joyful for me to see that, that empty space get filled. Um, and in this case, for it to be filled by song. What does what do those songs bring out of the text, have you found? I mean, I think the scale of opera is just so, it's so epic, it's so daunting in its way. And some of the most magical moments for me were sitting in rehearsal across from these astonishing instruments and getting to be that up close to the power of their voices. So there's one aria... Um, this is what it is to love an artist. The moon is always rising above your house. The houses of your neighbors look dull and lacking in moonlight. Um, and it goes on from there and, and it ends with, this is what it is to love an artist. This is what it is to love. Um, so the repetition was added in the opera. And um, I don't know, to hear to hear an actress sing that, I mean, it, 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 it has... Um, the same emotional valence, I think, as a soliloquy, but it just um, it just kind of pierces me to hear it sung. Does the story mean anything to you? Mean something different to you now than it did before? Back because you wrote that play. That play was written in two thousand three, right? Yeah, I I mean, I was twenty six when I wrote it, and I'm forty six now. And yeah. finally, Matt, when he started working on the score, was twenty six also. I mean, I think now I'm generationally, 
I'm in the position of the parent rather than yeah. the child, you know? Yeah. Your work has always been highly theatrical, and I know you've thought quite a bit about sort of what defines theater as theater and the importance of presence and the quality of experiencing something live. Even before all this happened, what is your definition of theatricality? Well, I mean, post-pandemic, I've been I've been writing these little haikus as a practice, and one little haiku ended up being about the theater and. I, I can see if I have it memorized. It's something yeah. like, you can't fast forward it. You can't take a crap while watching it. <laughs> and yes, you must be dressed. <laughs> 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 you know, it's like these rituals of presence that we take for granted, but that suddenly when you're watching Zoom theater, you realize the ritual no longer applies. Like, you don't have to be dressed. You don't have to be on time. You don't have to sit through it. If you, if if an emergency calls, you can tend to it. Whereas mm. in the theater, we are all, I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you think about it. We as a group have all decided to train our attention on this stage for this moment in time. And nothing else matters out, outside of that attention. To me, the, the Zoom um, theater, while it has kind of wonderful craft, wonderful charitable impulses. Um, it's funny, the Homebound project that I was part of, which I think they produced beautifully and have raised $60,000 mm. uh, for No Kid Hungry, which is so yeah. great since, you know, one out of five kids is starving right now. Um, but there's an intermission built into it. And I just found that hilarious, um, <laughs> like a great touch. And I really enjoyed the intermission too. Mm-hmm. I was like, intermission, you know, it's these rituals that that we long for these ways of dividing time up yeah why do we long for them what's important to you to preserve in the whole uh ritual of it i think it's very mysterious i think i i I find it hard to put into words like i i had a neighbor friend invite me to a zoom um end of shabbat ritual Mm. that does with um her um her Jewish school community. And, and I found it so moving that everyone was marking the time, the end of the week ritually in this way. And I had done the same ritual at her house once. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I wasn't raised Jewish, so I don't know all of the particular rituals, but there, there's this moment where you pass sweet spice around and you smell it, um, as a way to mark the end of Shabbat and the beginning of the week. And I love that so much. And of course on Zoom, you can't smell. Right. Um, so <laughs> people can wave these herbs, but you can't smell them. And I guess that to me, that's where the mystery is, you know, those intangibles. Mm. Um, you know, you think of Catholic mask and the wafting of the incense, or you think of Maurice Maeterling, crazy Belgian who wanted to have smell machines at turn of the century theater. It's that mm. I think I think of smell because it picks up on those intangibles of ritual and presence. Um, you know, when you meet someone over Zoom, you can't smell their pheromones. What does that do? <laughs> so what right. does that do? And then, of course, I don't know why I'm going out down this olfactory um, track right now. But, of course, with COVID, people lose their sense of smell and taste. Mm. Um, so it it feels like we are in this very strange era of um lack of flavor you know lack of Mm. differentiating moments 
As you mentioned, you're a lecturer at Yale, and I imagine this is a very, it's a very hard time for everyone, of course, but it's, I'm sure it's very hard for them who are hoping to make a career in the theater. How are they feeling about what's going on right now? I think the students at Yale are coping all in very different ways. And I am incredibly worried about the third years who are graduating into this barren economic ecosystem. Mm. Um, They're remarkable writers and I'm sure they'll weather it, but I, I really feel for them and they've had their productions canceled. They don't have the ritual of graduation. Um, Some have had productions that were planned, professional productions canceled. So, you know, some of them have been planning to work on writing short stories for a while. Some of them might, you know, try to dust off a a TV pilot. Um, I mean, they're coping and they're packing. Um, But I think the theater community really needs to wrap their arms around this whole generation of of young artists who are emerging into this very weird moment. Yeah. So as we had talked about a little earlier, the Eurydice Opera was supposed to play the Met in 2021, which, you know, we're coming up close on the the start Mm -hmm. of that season. That's been, I imagine that's been delayed until further notice. Well, we haven't heard that yet, Mm. but who knows? It was supposed to be fall 2021, which, yeah, I mean seemed like such a long way away and mm. now feels like a blink of an eye away but right. um i don't know yet yeah. yeah and your work is also the focus of one of the residency one programs at the signature theater does does what season was that set for and has that been postponed at all that's been postponed um you know again unclear i think right. everyone it's like a big sudoku puzzle yeah how and when these seasons will get rearranged. Um, but yeah, I have, um, you know, hopefully have a new play with them and two revivals. Have you thought about yet which revivals? Are you? Are there any plays in particular of your own that you're anxious to return to and look at again? Yeah, um, we've talked about Eurydice. Uh, mm. Obviously, I, I don't want to overlap with the opera. Mm. Um, I've thought about the clean house i've thought about orlando um and i think it'll be interesting to get on the phone with signature in the coming weeks also because i might choose differently post-pandemic and and i don't even know what that means or how i would choose differently right but um but one might yeah (laughs) i don't know how how far along are you on the new play that you mentioned? Is that something you can tell us about? Sure. Um, so I have a play, Becky Nurse of Salem, that was just done at Berkeley Rep. Yeah. Um, oh, and that even wasn't for Signature, but it's funny. I, I was supposed to be in rehearsal at Lincoln Center this week for it. Um, mm. I guess it wasn't even announced yet. Uh, and now it's indefinitely postponed. But mm. uh, it is about... Uh, a woman who works at the Salem Witch Museum, um, and she is kind of a truth teller, and she's a descendant of Rebecca Nurse of Salem, who was one of the oldest so-called witches to get put to death, mm-hmm. and she loses her job, um, and she goes to see a witch in town, and then her life just kind of goes from bad to worse. Um, but it's it's sort of my rant about the crucible. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> which the play I think is incredibly masterful. Uh, but I learned at some point that that there are a couple slight fabulations in it, and one is that John Proctor never met Abigail in real life, and she was eleven and he was sixty. Um, oh, that's and, surprising. I didn't know that. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur Miller really had a crush on Marilyn Monroe at the time he was writing it. And he says in a New Yorker article that he put some of that desire into the play. And so I, when I learned that, I just found it fascinating that our whole understanding of this sort of massacre of women um, is based on the desire of one older man for Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so because it's so canonical and not only is it canonical, but the historical footnotes make you think you're reading a real historical document, mm-hmm. but, but the kind of emotional heat of it, which is that, that love affair right. or the seduction is, is totally fabricated. Mm-hmm. And so that, that will be at Lincoln Center. Yeah. And I, I suddenly am like, should I be announcing this? Cause it was never announced and now it's indefinitely postponed, but well. I but that I, is a new play that you're working on and that we yeah. will probably see somewhere. Um, but that is, that's a different new play than the one that you, for then the one that you will write for Signature. Signature. The Signature play I'm working on is an adaptation of my book Letters from Max, which I was hmm. telling you a little bit about, yeah. the, um, a correspondence between me and this remarkable poet, Max Ritko. Hmm. Um, so it's an epistolary form yeah and what else is fascinating you these days about her life uh, in the current time of COVID-19 what are the things that are really sort of keeping you um, interested uh, and excited and and things that might show up in your writing in the future well I love that you're that you're telling me reminding me to be interested and excited (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we all need the reminder, you know, because of such despair also. Mm. Um, how do you maintain your wonder and curiosity in the midst of that despair? I mean, this week I just feel in such despair about the racial yeah. politics of this country and, and you put Corona on top of that and then you put the White House on top of that and it's, it's enough to just not want to get out of bed right. much less write a new play. But um uh <laughs> uh but i i am writing um i am you know writing poems prose i recently wrote a prose piece about um going to the bookstore for the first time and browsing which i did the other day i i'm sheltering in place in rhode island and their bookstore oh opened yesterday and they had five people in at a time and I was person number one hmm. and you carry a little thing around with you and I was so just undone by the pleasure of browsing in a bookstore again it's like all these things will feel so virginal again like the first ice cream Sunday that someone else makes for you again the first book you buy with your hands and you bought because it surprised you and leapt out at you and a person collected it and put it on a shelf. Um, so I guess that's one thing that interests me is how we will come to appreciate all these first things again and how we will appreciate being with family and friends in person again, how, we'll, how we will appreciate 
caretaking um, in real time and, and, and place again. Um, did you buy something at the bookstore? I did. You know, one book I found that I was so excited because they had a pretty small drama section was 84 Charing Cross Road. Do you know that play? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I must have been a pretty strange child that I saw <laughs> a community theater production of that play hmm. in Illinois, and I loved it. And so I guess it makes sense. I've written these ep- epistolary dramas. Um, mm-hmm. So I bought that for myself, which I hmm. didn't own. And I bought Heidi for my daughter, Hope, and Annie. Mm. Auntie Mame for my daughter Anna. Oh. And um, I bought War of the Worlds for my son <laughs> and uh, Braiding Sweet Grass for my husband. Well, that sounds like a, a good collection of books to keep you occupied yeah, for a while. It was a good haul. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to the time that I can see one of your new plays uh, sometime soon. So thanks so much for joining me, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was really a delight to speak to you and, and brought some, some light to my day. So thank you. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. That was Sarah Rule, the playwright and co-founder of the new theater website, Three Views. Her book of poetry, 44 Poems for You, was released earlier this year. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe and find past episodes there and on all the other pod places, including Spotify and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. I'll be back next week with another new episode. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.